Here on this podcast today, we're going to be discussing interesting topics and interesting people in history. Our episode today, we'll focus on the Zoot Suit era, and we have interviews and research pieces to keep us all well educated. So sit back, relax, and open up your mind. Let's take a trip back to the 40s and learn what we can about Mexican-American culture and the silences and violences that have happened during the Zoot Suit eras in history. We will discuss the history of the Pachuco and Pachuca during the Zoot Suit era by uncovering and revealing the silences that happen within history, the forms of violence that have constantly been used by American culture. We will show you an alternate history behind the identity and the meanings of the Pachuco and Pachuca in Mexican-American history in 1942. On the night of August 1st, 1942, members of the 38th Street neighborhood gang made up a predominantly Mexican-American youth and located in South Central Los Angeles, traveled to a nearby reserve in East Los Angeles called the Sleepy Lagoon Case. Now, a lot of now a lot of Mexican-American youth would go to Sleepy Lagoon on the Greater East, which is located in the Greater East of Los Angeles, due to the fact that they were not allowed to frequently go to swimming pools in Los Angeles because in swimming pools were segregated at the time. And obviously in the summer, you know, in Los Angeles, like the summer in many places, it's extremely hot. So Mexican-American youth would venture off to the Sleepy Lagoon Reserve to go swimming. And on that night, one of the members, Henry Levas and his girlfriend, Dora Barrios, encountered a rival gang, the Downey Boys, made up of mostly white gang members. They were beat badly by members of the Downey Boys. Henry and Dora left to get reinforcement. After midnight and into August 2nd, 1942, the 38th Street Gang reunited to Sleepy Lagoon, but found no trace of the Downey Boys. They heard sounds of party nearby at the ranch of the De Galio family. The members entered the family and somewhere during the party, a fight ensured. The 38th Street Gang left the party afterwards. That morning, the body of Mexican-born American-raised Jose Galero Diaz was found unconsciously and dying, quote-unquote, by a road leading to the Delgado Ranch. He later died of head wounds at Los Angeles General Hospital. Immediately, the Los Angeles press used the incidents and Jose Diaz as a way of portraying a growing Mexican youth crime wave. Articles in Los Angeles Times called the incident a product of, quote-unquote, Mexican-born gangs and a rise in, quote-unquote, boy gang terror. The Los Angeles Police Department, who had declared war on the juvenile delinquency, countered a manhunt and rounded up over 600 Mexican males near the 38th Street neighborhood. In particular, they took from Mexican-American youth wearing the most recent urban trend of clothing of the zoot suit. Styled of drapes, suits worn by African-American, Mexican-American, Filipino, and Japanese youth in Los Angeles and across the country. So like Dr. Gonzalez, this massive sweep, especially if you have ideas of who might have done it, means that you go directly to who you think is responsible. But in this case, it was common practice for the Los Angeles Police Department in, to just gather any Mexican-American youth 
who fit in the profile being between the ages of 13 to 22 or 25, which is not really good policing practice. That is, you're going to pick anyone, you know, anybody who is between those ages of 13, that really could be anybody. In the sweep, they actually rounded up over 600 Mexican youth on suspicion of the murder of who will say yes. So you can already tell the rounding up and the sweeps were part of a larger political motivated project and a redumdum against the Pachuco. Prosecutors attempted to convict 22 young men already from the 38th Street neighborhood with first degree murder. Three Mexican American young women were later arrested as material witnesses. Eventually, the prosecution sought first degree charges for 17 young men. This started, this started one of the most well-known trials in California history, the People versus Zamora, or most commonly known as the Sleepy Lagoon trial. Presided over by Judge Charles Frigge, the Sleepy Lagoon trial, which lasted from October 13, 1942 till January 12, 1943, eventually indicated nine young men guilty of second-degree murder with a sec sentence of five years to life. Three young men, including Henry Levas, were given life sentences and sentenced to St. Quentin Prison. The other five were sentenced to up to a year of jail for assault. During the trial, unrepresented provisional decisions were made by the judge questioning the due process of each individual or trial. The young men were being tried as a group and were not allowed to change clothes during trial. The justification spoke to the media description of the Pachucos or zoo suitors as violent and deviant. It was used in the trial to persuade the jury that the young men's baggy clothes were indicators of their guilt. So prostitution asked the judge for the defendants not to be able to change their clothes because they, were, they wanted to make sure the jury knows that the youth themselves hold the same up arrow, the zoot suit, so that they have a particular presence to the jury. This is, this is that instead of the youth being able to use different clothes, in fact, even shower and comb their hair, they were all just left there in jail and only the clothing they were picked up with were the only ones they could wear. Now, you can imagine the kind of impact that might have on a jury if you see Mexican-American youth wearing the zoot suit, which already in the news is something being criminalized as a deviant population. You're not allowed to shower. You're not allowed to comb your hair. This already gives the impression to a jury that you're already guilty. You're a part of this. But you call craze and the particular threat. Police testimony was used throughout as expert testimony, trying crime to the young men's racial slash ethnic ethnicity identity. In some cases, they testified the Mexican Americans were more prone to violence and that preferred use to use of a knife due to their bloody, thirsty Aztec heritage. So like Dr. Gonzalez said, to call in a police officer to say that they're an expert in, for instance, the psychology of Mexican American youth, even if they took a Chicano class in Mexican American philosophy or psychology, does not make them an expert. And so in this context, to call police officers to give expert testimony that the youth are prone to violence is already setting the stage of, for their convi conviction. And so then the context, Mexican American youth were already guilty before they can be proven innocent or that they walked in as an innocent subjects. On the side of the young men and developing Mexican-American civil rights movement, forged careful alliances to help raise funds in their defense. The Civil Lagoon Defense Committee was created to help the young men. One of the main organizers, El Congreso de Pueblos, que hablan español, has organized national support. 
Months after the guilty verdict, during the summer of 1943, the height of World War II tensions grew between servicemen on leave and youth of color. U.S. sailors attacked Mexican-American, Black, and Asian-American youth wearing the zoot suits, called the zoot suit riots, by the media. To blame Mexican-American youth for violence, mobs of sailors and police officers patrolled barriers in the east side of Los Angeles and beat Mexican-Americans who fit the profile of the pachucos. Eventually, with the help of SLDC and other organizations, the case was sent to appeals in the Second District Court of Appeals in 1944. Judge Clement Nia overturned the decision due to an inefficient evidence and the denial of due process for the defendants. The 17 were freed the same year. Although the young men were released from prison on appeal, including Henry Levas, four of them were eventually go back to prison on other charges not related to the Sleepy Lagoon case. Forgotten in the case are three young women who were also used as witnesses. They were placed in boarding schools in Ventura County, where they stayed well after their male powder carts were freed. Men are primarily constructed as the predominant image of the Pachuca and the Pachuca. In the famous, lagoon, in the famous Sleepy Lagoon case, where Mexican-American zoot suitors were blamed for the death of Jose Diaz, not only were the 17 youth charged with murder, but also Mexican-American women who were being who were to be considered to be part of the 38th Street Gang. They were brought to trial to try to testify against their family members, partners, and community members. Young women who were a part of this dragment in a sense of criminalizing were not given the same treatment as men. Mexican-American women were not taken to jail, but instead would go to reform schools. These reform schools were just as bad as being in jail because they were created around reconditioning Mexican-American women, making sure that they were Americanized. For women, their punishment for being a Pachuca or Mexican-American woman was different than that of men. This shows how the even, even nature, for instance, of the criminal justice system in which the gender division of the criminal justice system shows the type of punishment, especially in trying to control women of color. All right, guys, that was the beginning of a beautiful time as we walk back down the Zoot Suit era. We would like to continue with our interview. We have actual Pachuco from now, and his father was in the 1940s Zoot Suit riots, as well as partook around the Sleepy Lagoon trial. And he can uncover more history of a culture mixed between a Mexican culture and an American culture and how a people were just trying to find their identity while living in two spirits. My name is Moses Porras and, and I'm a Pachuco. So um, the Pachuco is a part of my heritage that I've had from my dad. Uh, growing up, he was a Pachuco back in the 1940s. He was actually there at the Zutu riots, and um, he was stripped and beaten, just like many other the young Pachucos, Mexican-Americans that were very hardworking individuals during that time period. He told me a lot of the stories about himself as far as the family and my, my tias and, and uncles and so forth. So. Um, they told me all the stories about them growing up in Downey in Los Angeles, Cal Los Angeles, uh, the city of Los Angeles. From then on, he started telling me about 
all about the, pain, the shoes. And he started telling me about um, the calo, the mix of Spanish and English, and telling me the words like, orale, ay te guacho, and all those things like that. And so I picked all of that up. And um, and then Phyllis, I say, uh, came along. And, um, so this is 1978. And so from there, uh, right there, just to kind of show you, that's me back then. So in the middle. And so yeah, um, from there, she introduced it to me, put me in a suit and said, we're going to go to car shows, we're going to go to cultural events, and we're going to start modeling. And I'm going to teach you more about the pachuco, more about the dress style, the language, dance moves. And we took it to car shows, um, lowrider uh, low car shows, cultural events. Um, and it brought back the revitalization of the zoot suit um, over 40 years ago. And so we were part of it. We were the founding pioneers of bringing back the Zutsu because it, it was gone since the 1940s and faded over the years. So come 1978, we brought it back. Phyllis found one, started making them with the tailors, and we were out there bringing the cultura to everyone um, at assemblies and, and so forth. We even had a nightclub. We had a nightclub for the young uh, under 21 kids to come on out there, and we would dance and perform for everybody on Friday nights and Saturday nights. And uh, DJ'd and, and showed the suits and had different fashion shows and all that other kind of like that too as well and bringing the culture back and it boomed uh, during that time period and has gone out uh, worldwide now she still makes the suits and has gone to Germany has gone to Australia has gone to Japan uh, we have our we just had our 40th reunion uh, just last year and everybody came dressed as zoot scooters as pachucos and pachucas so we were all there sharing and showing our pictures and having a great time and carrying it. So I'm very thankful that you all you know, have me here and you're carrying that culture forward too because the significance behind it and knowing what this barrio uniform is all about. So this is my culture and this is my heritage and it's important to share that family history of the struggles and the oppression that uh, many of the Pachucos went through during the time of the 1940s. How was it like becoming a Pachuco slash Zootsuiter at the age of 15? And how did, did you feel like your identity changed in a way? Oh, definitely. It changed because I knew a little bit about the stories, but I grew up in the barrio, a small little barrio in Southern California called Atwood. So um, there were different things that were happening because we got bussed out of one area in order to be bussed into another area, which was predominantly white during that time period. So we were trying to like kind of blend in at the same time. And some of us became ourselves or some of us became, you know, almost like into that white kind of culture heritage, you know, that they had. So because of everything that was happening during that time period. But when I got a hold of the Zutsu and Phyllis imparted more from my, from to me and giving the Zutsu, that said, this feels good. This feels natural. This is part of my blood. It runs through my blood. And it felt like this is where I belong. And so from then on, everywhere I went, I wore it to school every day. Um, different events that I went to, uh, just going out and around, I wore it and I felt good. I felt uh, comfortable because I was a hardworking person at that time. Um, and I wanted to dress good and dress nice. I went to my proms, my, my proms, you know, dressed as the pachuco. I was the only pachuco there at the prom. But I was dressed, you know, and I still have a couple of pictures of me dressed up in my zoot suit from back then, too, um, at the prom. But it felt really good. And, and this is a picture you see in the film. That's the original picture that my, my sister had taken. So that was my uh, 
one of my first suits and I still have my other suit. So it felt good. I felt very, very good, very, very, um, very good in wearing it. It felt, it just fit, just fit right in. How did people, your family and your community respond to a Zoot Suitor? Like, I know you say it was developed in your family. Explain that to us. Yes. Um, the people, starting with my family, okay. My dad, my dad loved it, of course, because he was a pachuco. So he loved it when he first saw me and he embraced me and said, mijo, you know, this is, this is good. This is cool what you're wearing. Even when we went out to different places and he saw me uh, performing a couple of times. And so he goes, I'm so glad that you're bringing this out to everyone and showing everyone, you know, part of our heritage. And, and so that made me feel really good, especially coming, coming from my dad, you know, the, 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 the father-son relationship, you know, that we had. So it felt really good that I was able to get it, hear it from him. So, um, when I wore it and I took it out there and, and seen um, the rest of my family, a lot of them loved it because they could recognize it too, right? The only, pro the only problem that I really had was with my mom. <laughs> my mom, um, there's a movie scene in one of the films where they actually come home and you're seeing, you know, them kinda, they're kind of dressed in a zoot suit, right, in this, in this film. And it was kind of the same thing what happened to me. I show up in a zoot suit and I go home, I'm 15 years old. And my mom, you know, say, what the heck are you doing? You know, where are you? I don't want you dressed like that. What's wrong with you? Right. But she thought I was, you know, going to be like, you know, after all the, the labeling and everything was, I'm going to be this gangster and all this other stuff, because that was placed in her mind, you know, a long time ago that, you know, that they're gangsters, but we're not. You know, we're hardworking individuals and we just like to go out, look good, look sharp, look muy bonaru and go out there and just, you know, have a good time. And, and that's basically what we're doing. And, and we were sharing the culture. So it wasn't finally later on that she kind of figured out and saw what I was doing and bringing a positive image to the culture when we started getting into the car shows and the magazines and things like that, too. So but at school, it was tough. It was difficult. Because some of the teachers there, they didn't like it. They would turn the other way. Um, some of them just kind of, you know, look down or give me a bad look and thinking that, oh, I'm going to be this gangster. Especially when um, I went around the office, you know, in the off office area of the high school. You know, they would, they would think the same thing. So, but a lot of them did, you know, they, they kind of knew and they recognized the suit. So, especially my, my teacher, my drama, one of my drama, my drama teacher. You know, she loved it, embraced it, because she had seen the play. She had loved it, too. So um, it was too soon to bring it, because later on, she said she would love to have brought it to the school to kind of show it and display it. But, um, but everywhere else, if I went on the bus or I, I went to different places, yeah, I would get all those different um, types of, you know, good looks, bad looks, mean looks, and things like that, too. So, um, but nobody, you know, like, people were still respectful. It wasn't like you know, they called me names or spit on me or anything like that. So that was, that was really good. So wherever we went, but people were very respectful, but they still would give me those looks, those bad looks. And you mentioned also that your the Zoot Zoot basically represents your identity, right? And yeah. I think you sort of mentioned that your father thought that as well, but was there any difference between you and your father and how both of you saw the Zoot Zoot? I think, well, the difference between me and him between me and my dad was that um, because we both liked the style, we both loved mm -hmm. the, the dress the, from the Takuche to the Tramas to the Calcos, everything. We all loved, we both loved it. We loved the music, 
because we talked about the music of Lalo Guerrero, Glenn Miller, Tommy Dorsey, all those uh, uh, big bands that were happening during that time. We both loved the music. Um, he, he, he loved to dance and he, he would tell me. Uh, he loved the caló. I mean, he was still speaking it even till, his, even till the end of his life. But um, the difference was he was going through a different time period with the oppression and the segregation, which he meant, and the discrimination that happened, especially the times when he did have the, the, some of the military and the police went after him and they, you know, they ripped his pants. They ripped his pants. My tia had told me about it too, right? And, um, and, and, and threw him off and left him there, you know, beaten in, in the streets. So that part, I didn't experience it, but it was to him, it was like, you're doing a good thing, carry it on. So there, as far as wearing it and being proud of it, yeah, he felt good, just like I do. I feel good to wear it, especially after him, you know, going to work and, and, and wanting to go dance. That's all he wanted to do. He just wanted to go to the dances at the theaters, you know, downtown in downtown LA, off of, off of Broadway. Like he'd go to the Paramount and the Orpheum and all these other places too. And he just, that's all he wanted to do. He wanted to go dance and have a good time and check out the girls, you know, so, and that's what he would tell me. So after a hard week of doing all of that, that um, so, uh, and that's kind of what, you know, growing up, you kind of wanted to do too, as well as the same. So I think those are the only differences, the time period of what was happening to where we didn't experience, I didn't experience as much as what he did and ended up um, getting arrested a couple of times for, for um, being Mexicano and also because of the corruption that was going on within the judicial system during that time period and ended up at the um, California Youth Authority in Preston Castle, which is out there in California. So, so that's kind of what a little bit of the difference is. Can you share with us some of the experiences your father had participating in the riots, some of the memories he shared with you? He remembers being, he was at the theater. It was at where the, if you go down Broadway Street, I don't know if you're familiar with LA, there's an Orpheum Theater, there's the Paramount Theater, uh, there's a Million Dollar Theater, all those areas in that area, that's where he was at. He grew up in Downey. Well, Downey, if you know the Sleepy Lagoon murder trial, right? The mention of the Downey Boys, right? Well, they, uh, the Downey Gang, but mention they were called the Downey Boys back then during that time period, right? So, um, so he lived, he was all in that area during that time period in the 1940s, along with his uncles. So he would go downtown, he would take the red car, he would take the red car for it was like a dime just to go downtown, to be, he would get dressed up. They would go to the movies, because he, he worked in the foundries and he worked in the canneries and he worked out in the fields and the orchards too. So they wanted to go to the movies, they wanted to go dancing and he would mention about the times that he went dancing to, to, to go down to the, to the theaters. And, the, and some of the other ballrooms in that area too as well. Him, him and my tia, my tia Pauline, they would always go together. So she was a pachuca and she was, sometimes she would carry a knife in her hair. <laughs> she, she told me that too, just to kind of watch out and you know, just to be, to make sure everything's okay. So, and um, so he went out there, they would, they would go out together basically at times. And he loved to, he loved to sing and he loved to dance. So. He was always dressed up after a long week and he would go out there and they would go to the dance clubs, to the canteens, that's what they call them, where the canteens where he would go out there and have a good time. Well, a lot of the, um, the, the, 
the military and some of the police around the area would come in and they would start saying stuff to him. And he was only 14 at that time, right? And 15 later on and 16. And so then, so during that time period, um, that's all he wanted to do. He was just go out there and do that. So then he would, um, he'd go out there, they would call him names, they would tell him stuff at the same time. And then, um, especially that time, like I said, when, when he was at um, a dance where him and my, my tia were at, and my tia was away from him for a while, and my tia said, well, hey, you know, they're after Ramon right now. Go after him. Go get him because they're, they're, they're getting on him. So my tia went over there, and they started, um, she started to go over there and help him and get him away, right? And that's the time when they came over, and, and they were getting him, and they ripped him up. And they took him home and they took him, took him back to my grandparents' house. And my grandpa was there and my grandpa said, what happened? Because he saw my dad's, you know, pants, they were all, you know, all torn up. So um, he goes, well, what happened to you? And then my dad started telling him, letting him know. So, but, but he, my, my grandpa had worked at a, um, he was working during the time of the Bracero program, right? And so um, he didn't want to get in any kind of trouble or anything like that. So he kind of said, okay, you know, like, um, and I'm just going to have you come in and come in inside. So, and that's basically what happened with them. They just kind of, they stayed home after that because they didn't want to, who could they go to? They couldn't go to the police because police were arresting people. And that's what happened to my dad later on. They, they were arresting them. They were arresting Mexican Americans during that time. So whether you were a Pachuco or not, that's what they were doing. So, and he ended up several times after that when he'd go to parties and things and and uh, he would get, um, and he got, like I said, a couple of times he got arrested. Finally, when he, when it was 16, is when he really got arrested, and he got sent to the, to Preston Castle. So, so that's kind of a short version. Do you feel like the, um, in your dad becoming a zoot suitor, the idea of him uh, growing this culture, you know, and was it like? just predominantly Mexican-American? Was it shared by all minority groups? Was it something that was a way of the minorities to gain almost like a fellowship or like a brotherhood in a place where the militia had theirs already? You know, like, what did that look like? Yeah, he's, he told me that, um, yeah, that definitely there was um, from Filipinos to Blacks to even uh, Japanese-Americans or, or Asian, as you call them now during that. This was him telling me, excuse me, telling me this too. So it wasn't just um, even the white culture too, but he would see predominantly more, you know, because he was around uh, uh, a lot of his friends during that time period. So he was predominantly around Mexican-Americans, but there were others, they were Filipino, they were black, they were Asians that wear them too. And he would see people as well too, because he spent more time around Downey, LA, and around um, the uh, White Fence, all of that area where 38th Street is, all of that location, he would spend time around there too because he had friends from there too. So, um, so yeah, he saw different ethnicities that were out there during that time. But it, it, um, it seemed that they were in the very beginning going more anybody who was a zoot suitor after the media gave him that name. So, and then later on, then um, they were just going after Mexican-Americans. So was your aunt also at the Zuzu riots? And if so, how was her experience like? And how did she become a Pachuca? I can't, I can't say how she really became a Pachuca other than seeing like my dad and then her uncles too as well. That's what I would say that she, 
uh, grow, growing up in that area in Downey, um, she began to put, you know, everything that she needed to put well, from the makeup to the, to the dress style. And she would tell me about yeah, that with her skirts and how she would bring up her skirt to go above the knees. So when they went to dances and stuff like that too. So, um, and it was just part of her surroundings, her environment, the atmosphere that she started picking it up and more and more, but she loved it and she enjoyed it. But also knowing that she would get, um, like when she would get on the bus or um, they would go to different places, yeah, how she, they would get dirty looks. Um, so she's told me a couple other story, even she wasn't dressed as a pachuca, but she was out in, even in the, in the orchards working during that time. And, and, and it was mainly, um, it was none of the Mexican workers, the farm workers that were working during that time, but every other ethnicity would say something toward her during that time too, and she didn't like it. So especially the time that she got on the bus and when she was on the bus, that was a story that she remember, I remember her telling me when she got on the bus and um, they gave her dirty looks when she got on the bus, especially when she went to go sit down toward the back, not total back, but almost toward the back. And there were some white Anglo girls that were on there and they said comments toward her during that time. And she liked it, but she didn't, didn't want to create this um, confrontation because she kind of knew she would be outnumbered eventually at that time. So she carried herself with dignity and pride and knew that this was not who she is when she was on that bus. And when she got off the bus, I mean, she just walked straight out and held her head high and knew with inside her that this is not who they say or they may think that I am because I know who I am and I'm going to continue walking because she was with a friend. She had another friend who was a, uh, one of her girlfriends at the time and they walked off together. So, yeah. And that one, I kind of, I know I have that one on tape too. I, ha I had that recorded. So, but yeah. So she felt very good for, till this day, you know, because you, you, you talk to my tia and I love my tia. She gave me a lot of insight and she likes, yeah, I love being, you know, a pachuca during that time. I was, I know I was proud of it, proud of my heritage and proud, proud of it. And I guess that kind of, you know, from my dad and then now from my tia hearing that, it's like, wow, you know, that made me feel good that, you know, I should be proud because of what the struggles they went through. And now I can carry it through them. And that makes me feel really good and I can embrace it. So we should, every time we get together, my tia Pauline and I, we talk about nothing but the pachucos and the pachucas. It's all, that's, that's what it is. It creates this great dialogue and it keeps her youthful too. She loves the, the music. I mean, every time in the mood comes on, she's like, come on, let's get up, let's dance, you know? <laughs> For Pachuca, obviously they were they didn't wear zoot suits. So, yeah. but would you say that their attire as well sort of represented the same thing that for Pachuco the zoot suit represented? Yeah, yeah. Because she would tell me she almost she had a long coat, not the not the same style like of what we had, but it was a longer coat with the skirt, and so how she would pick it up too. So um, I even have a picture of her. I wish I could put it up. It sh it shows her with her hair and her makeup. Make her makeup on during that time period too. So, and it looks, it looks, yeah, she looks really good. But yeah, that's basically what she would wear. She would wear more of the more, more of the blouse with the skirt too, and and keep it. When she left, when she got out of the side of my grandpa, that she would tell me she would go out there and you know and bring it up because she wanted to go out and meet the guys and things like that too. So yeah, but loved it. 
No, even her hairstyle today. I mean, she's got this royal crown of white hair of wisdom. And, you know, she's got the little pompadour still. So, yeah, and she's, she's really good, really nice. What role did women play in the stories you were told regarding the Zeus rights? With my tia, and she's probably the one that I can really um, kind of uh, um, go to, basically go to and say from her perspective was that um, many times she would work alongside with everybody. So it wasn't like for her that she would just stay at home. No, she was out there with the familia because all of them were, everybody was working in the orchards during that time too. So they were all right there with them. And so um, she was doing that in order to help out the family at that time in order to bring uh, more, of it, more income to the family to, 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 to live on a day by day, you know, to week by week um, basis. So, um, so I would say her role wasn't just like, okay, she's a housewife. Or she's like, you know, like how, because that's the term that they used to use back then, that she's, that's not her role. Her role is like to be out there and help with the family and not like, okay, this is a male role. This is a female role because she did, she did everything. She was out working, but she also did stuff at the house and the same with my, my, my dad and, and his brothers and that they were doing, everybody was doing everything together. So it wasn't like, okay, all the guys went out and worked and everybody, all the females stayed at home. No, they all went out together to, to, to work and do things, you know, together in order to bring that, the income. So um, the only other thing was, yeah, she was taking care of the, um, she was taking care of the, um, the kids, you know, too. I think that's probably one of the differences was that um, like my dad would, yeah, you'd look out for his little brothers, but like my tia would kind of be there to kind of, you know, you know, make a meal or watch them or babysat, things like that. That's what I would say. So when it came to their 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 roles, but um, as a role as a pachuco, well, hey, she got in there and she fought, you know, alongside my dad because she went to go rescue my dad, you know, my dad's over there because it was just him by himself. It was just them too, right? But it was him by himself over here and these guys are over here, you know, beating up on him. That's when they called him and she went over there and she got into it too. You know, because it's the, the strength of the family that's going to protect and watch each, each other out because that's what that's what they did during that time, during that time period. So, yeah, I would say her role was um, between the term Pachuco and Pachuca. They were the same with both my dad and my tia. So I would say that. Sounds like a, uh, one of the cliches that we hear all the time, right? It takes a village to raise a family and the males take the older ones and the boys, but the little stay with the mommies. It's kind of familiar to me for my culture also. What is it that you see about the spirit of the Zoot Suit and those themes that are applied into Chicano and Chicana history or identity more so nowadays? It's very international especially now through Phyllis, I would say, because um, I would definitely say that because it's gone to like Germany, it's gone to Australia, it's gone to Japan, it's gone through celebrities too as well. Um, from like the series that they just had with City of Angels, um, uh, the Penny Dreadful series on sh that they had just recently. So um, that's, you know, gone out through, um, you know, media and other, uh, other uh, media venues, I would say, you know, during this time that it's gone out to. So I see it as international that, that yeah, it's, it's past those um, 
it's past all of those things that sometimes we think in the natural that you know what that now this is something that's international for all ethnicities that the zoot suit is is for so and 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 many of them are embracing it and the thing especially the, the thing with phyllis at the el pachuco zoot suit store is that um that's how she looks at it she sends it out to everyone of all types of you know ethnicities from here on out which is which is a great representation of, of, of you know the Pachuca in the early days and, and, and to just to bring it out there now internationally. So it goes beyond any ethnicity barrier, you know? So you can't build no wall or nothing around the Pachuca, the Zoot Suitor, you can't. Cause now everybody has it and everybody wants one. Once they see it, I'm seeing, hey, you're trying to you know build this barrier, or build this wall or whatever. Hey, you know what? The suit is everywhere. How are you going to stop that suit? And it's all ethnicities too. It's all ethnicities that wear it too. White, black, Asian, everyone. You know, like I said, German, Italy, um, Johnny Cash got one. Johnny Depp bought one. <laughs> all these different celebrities. Everybody, you know, they, everybody has a lot of them. And I even now, like when we go out somewhere and um, all ethnicities, they say, hey, I have a zoot suit. And like, what? I mean, sharing this, um, the video, Mr. Zoot Suit with Chancellor, who she's the director and producer of the film, right? She's Nigerian. So then I, so she, all of her family is Nigerian. So it went to them, to, you know, internationally. And recently we had the International um, Film Festival last year. So it went there too. And people are asking and they want one, they want to buy it. Uh, we had some people from, uh, they came up to us um, that were Arabic and they came up to us and wow, they loved it, took pictures and all that. Where can I get one? Where can I find it? You know, things like that. that so it's all over and, it, and, it, and it's going, it's, it's just phenomenal. So yeah, I think the spirit of it, it lives on. And it's, and, and, and it's students like you as well as myself that we're carrying that out and carrying it on. So, uh, and keeping it alive. So and, and yeah, and it's a, it's a symbol of social justice in the corruption that was happening back then in the 1940s. So it's a, someday a president is going to be wearing a zoot suit. I, I see it someday, yeah, because <laughs> it's a symbol of social justice. So it's just a matter of, hey, getting him one there and let him put it on, him or her, whoever, you know. We were sort of talking about your aunt's experience. And we were also wondering, were Pachucas basically uh, blamed for the riots within the Mexican, Mexican-American culture? I really can't say that I have a definite answer on that. I mean, I know that a lot of the Pachucas were there, including my tia. And like I was saying about, I, that's, that's probably the only more perspective I can give is my, my family, which is my tia, my, my dad, and some of my uncles too as well. Uh, and a couple other theos too, because they all live in that area. Uh, El Monte, uh, uh, Downey, all of those areas of LA. So um, I can say that they're, um, I don't think it was like a contribution, like they were out there trying to create a riot. I think they were victims of what was happening during that time period. That's what I kind of think. So, um, and I think, um, I think many, this is just my own theory, I think many of them during that time period, including my dad, were just trying to 
you know, kind of defend themselves in the ways that they could. So I don't, I think they were, I mean, I know that like my dad, he was, he, they, and my dad, they were, they were a victim of this, of what was happening with the segregation and the discrimination and the oppression from not only just from um, different ethnicities, but also the media, especially in the, the newspapers of that during that time period. I don't know if you ever saw like, um, there's a cartoon by Disney that's called The Spirit of, of St. Louis, where Donald Duck is wearing a zoot suit. And he has a swastika for a tie, right? So they're bringing out this propaganda out to everybody and, and making them seem like, you know, he's part of this Nazi party and he's big and spending and he's lazy. You have to watch it. It's on YouTube now. But you can see that. And it's like, that's part of the, um, the patriotism that they were doing during that time, trying to promote that if you're not patriotic, well, you have to be unpatriotic. So... I think they, they were a product of all of that circumstances that was happening and going around, you know, during that time period. So they had, a t my dad talked to me, you know, at uh, different times and telling me about the, 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 the segregation and the, and the discrimination, especially, yeah, my tia too, they did. That they, so I don't think they contributed to anything. So like even the knife that she had in her hair, that was for defending herself. It wasn't like she was out there going to looking for, trouble or anything like that. That was just, you know, just in case, you know, to, to, pr to protect, you know, herself basically, because they just wanted to go out and have a good time after working hard, you know, they, and, and supporting the family. That's what they were doing, supporting the family, you know, making their money, coming home, supporting the family, giving some money to, to the familia so they can, you know, have food on the table, all of that. And they just wanted to go out because she loves to dance. They both did. My dad loved to, to dance and he loved to sing. So, and that's, that's all they were doing. They weren't into anything else when they, when they would go out and stuff like that too. So, I believe that's definitely, definitely something that's come into our uh, identity now, right? We love to dance. I don't know too many of us oh, that yeah. don't. I really just, we, we want to thank you for your time so much and thank you for um, explaining and, and giving us this experience and this shared space. If there is anything that you want to be put into the world for um, our generation, for us to understand, we are now uh, becoming awake you know, our history books, our school books this semester especially, they don't talk about the way history was, I guess, dictated years ago. You know, we get to hear real stories about what has been happening, how uh, Chicano culture and Chicano culture was targeted and how we were defending ourselves. And it was nothing near the original history books. And we are super grateful for that. If there's any direction you can give us for awareness to move forward, what wisdom would you leave us with? If you're working on any um, policies, right, I would definitely continue to do that. Be an advocate for those policies that you're creating or developing or that you coincide with basically that you like say, okay, I believe in this and I, I'm buying into this policy that someone else and being behind those organizations that have this, that you're the same belief as what you all believe too. So I would definitely say, you know what, I'm going to support those. But I think the best thing to do is begin with the world around you. 
it's important to be able to begin with your own families to create a dialogue within them. It's also important to be able to create that dialogue within your children. I, and I, I've done that with my own, with my own family and my own children is letting them know some of the stories. I'm really in family history. And this is where a lot of this also began. So then I could let them know as my children, my grandchildren, my great grandchildren, documenting, writing it, and writing your own family history and putting it out there so they can know and see and appreciate it and start from there that they know. Because we were taught so many other histories and we need to hear those real stories and connect and having, you know, pan dulce and coffee and tell me some of the things that, you know, your stories, where you grew up, what did you do, the struggles you went through and documenting it at the same time, even if it's with the phone and putting it down and turning it on, right? So then you can have that conversation with parents and grandparents and kids. Because when you do that and you document and especially talking to the grandchildren is letting them know the struggle so they can appreciate their lives and know that they're blessed from here on out. And it's important that they learn their own history from there because you're impacting generations when you're just talking to that one grandchild or grandson, granddaughter, or brothers or sisters or uncles, or whoever, you're impacting them one at a time and it creates that ripple effect to everyone, to getting, becoming stronger in your knowing your own stories and of your own heritage and sharing it from them. So, so everyone in the family now knows this is what I do and carrying it out from my children to my great-grandchildren, I mean my great-grand, my children to my grandchildren to my, to my family, my sisters, my brothers. And so they know this is what I do and they back me up and support me 100%. So they, they know that. And, and that's what feels good about it is, is sharing that culture and the struggles that um, my own family, especially with my dad, my mom, and all of them that they've gone through during this time. So, and my dad, you know, passed away in 2010 and he gave me a lot of great stories, but it's to me, it, you know, I, I, I share it, you know, share it out there as much as I can. Uh, and I have a whole lot of other stuff of pictures and all this other stuff too. So, um, but I'm very grateful and thankful that you all are carrying this message and, and stories and, and culture and keeping it alive and taking it out there to the world and taking it out to other generations. Just, just that one person, you're impacting generations. And that's all, that's, that's a start to create that ripple effect to, to the rest of the familia and everybody else too. And giving it a positive name because it was so, we're not gangsters, we're not hoodlums. We're, we're not, we're hardworking people who love familia and love to sing and dance and all of that stuff too. So, hey, you know, I'm very grateful and thankful that you all gave me this opportunity and honored and honored. So, yeah, so God bless you all abundantly and take it forward. And What an empowering, amazing, and wonderful story we got to hear about the history. And now you guys know, based on that interview, where you want to go to find out what's going on in the world of the Zoot Suits now in this generation. 
We've gone worldwide, guys. That's so much to be excited for. And to celebrate something that from its foundation was just helping youngsters to identify in a world where they felt like they didn't fit in. Next, we have an interview coming up with JP Pina, where she will be talking about where the women were left out and what happened to the women and the Pachuca based on the way that they were dressed and the way that they were treated. And we'll get to see some more about how this was more of a self-defense issue than it was being a predator. It was just some kids. They were just kids trying to grow up and find their place in this world. Like all of our kids have the right to grow up and find their place in this world. I'd like to introduce to you, JP Pina. Hey, how's it going? Um, today in Chicano 50 podcast, we are going to be examining the Zoot Suit era, but more specifically, we're going to be talking about the silences of the Zoot Suit symbology as it pertains to the intersections of race and gender. We're going to be looking at the Sleepy Lagoon case and the Zoot Suit riots themselves while reinstating a lost history. Um, and in doing so, we're going to be taking the violence out of the silence of the Chicano. And what I mean by that is that we're going to be giving a narrative that has been that has been wrongfully shared throughout mass media in American politics and American culture. Um, there's been a negative connotation associated with zoot suits and the pachucos, pachucas, in um, in the Southwest, um, but more specifically looking into the Los Angeles area um, as the culture itself uh, perpetuated itself within the community. Um, but I specifically will be looking at the symbology of the zoot suits um, and what that meant really for the pachucos and the pachucas of the era. And I think it's really important to understand um, as pachucos and pachucas, they had different experiences. And so what that really means is that the Pachucos, right, they had their experience as the men who carried the Zoot Suit Riot, which, which was a form of resistance. It was a form of rejecting both the American way of life, but also the Mexicano way of life and, and really forming their own identities in a society that was at war. And even with the Pachucas, they, that was also a symbol, uh, a symbol of, of their resistance to both of those cultures. And so because these teenagers, these young men um, from you know, the age of 12 all the way up to maybe the 20s, they, they saw this as their way of reclaiming who they wanted to be in society. And many times, American, uh, American beauty standards said, this is how you have to look. And the Pachucas, they knew, they knew that they were never going to be formally accepted into an Anglo dominant society that existed within America. They knew that by adopting those beauty standards, they, they were lying to themselves. And that's why they, they found solace and they found comfort in that identity with, with the Zoot Suit era. And the same with the Pachuco boys. Unfortunately, however, 
mainstream America saw them as a threat, just as their parents did um, to the Mexicano culture. But that that went further than that. It Mexicans in general were never really accepted um, from manifest destiny. They were never really embraced as Americans in society. So this was their way of reclaiming their own identities as Mexican Americans. Uh, Pachucas, more specifically, uh, always felt injustices within the society. And she saw police brutality. There was a, there was a lady uh, named Mrs. Ven Venegas. She had a husband um, who was part of the military serving overseas. And um, she uh, had to go to, you know, the store to get some stuff. And uh, she brought some brass knuckles with her because at the time the tensions were, were really high within, within American society. And she saw, as a Pachuca, she saw the violence being perpetrated against a group of teenagers by the hands of police. And as she stepped in and said, hey, this isn't okay, it ended up turning, you know, turning the tide a bit and, and really the, the police ended up attacking her and because they found the brass knuckles on her, automatically labeled her a gangster. And what that did for the movement is that it really set off this, this mainstream identity across the board with the Mexican-American Pachuco and Pachucas as gangsters, as, as people who were up to no good, as people who were violent, right? But what they weren't understanding is their, their identity claim and what it meant to be an, a Mexican-American in, in America during World War II. Um, and what that really did is that it set, it set a tone for uh, negative connotation and that, all, that led obviously to the, the Sleepy Lagoon case and the, the Zoot Suit riots where they had no protection. But specifically women in this fight, Pachuca women were often overlooked or forgotten they were looked at as um, promiscuous. They were looked at as uh, a threat. And um, they were looked at as second-class citizens. And they rejected this wartime vision in America, um, which claimed that American citizens were one culture, that claimed that we were all treated the same, that it, it was a time where America sought to be uh, unionized through the war efforts. We're all in this together. It's America versus, you know, the world, or I would say against Axis powers. Um, and they, they knew that they weren't treated that way. They knew that, you know, if they went to war, that they, they were gonna be treated as second class citizens at home. And so because they knew this, because they understood this, and they understood their identities within these politics, they rejected them. They rejected them by, by wearing the zoot suit. And it was a problem. It was seen as a cultural pathology problem. And um, they were painted by the media. Uh, you know, Mexican parents especially were painted by the media as people who didn't have a control over their children. They, they saw their children as running loose, like they have no ability to really stop them. And so that, that played a role too. And they wanted to racially and culturally assimilate these young teenagers 
to fit into their Anglo, and when I say they, I mean American society, wanted to, to assimilate these Mexican Americans to fit their brand, and they rejected it. And so because they rejected it, again, they were looked at as juvenile delinquents, um, they were looked at as prom promiscuous, um, as party goers, as troublemakers. Um, and women really took the, the, the brunt of, of these things. They had their, their identities, you know, tarnished. They had their reputations tarnished. It didn't matter if you were out on the street. Um, there's a term in Mexican-American culture that's called callejera. And um, what that really means is that you're out on the streets and you're doing things um, that you're not supposed to be doing, right? You're, you're in your Mexican heritage, you're supposed to be staying at home, taking care of the home and the family. Um, and the same goes with American in culture, right? Uh, during the 40s, there was that, that time frame where women were expected to maintain the home. But these women saw themselves as something other than that. There was a liberation within that movement, right? There was the war effort where women were now being employed and being given opportunities to uh, grow economically. And that independence also fueled their, their desire to reject both systems because they didn't want to return home. They wanted to live their own life. They wanted to experiencing things for, or experience things for themselves. And in that experience, um, they were also brown. So, so that, that's something to take into consideration. Uh, society, again, like I said, uh, shifting away from women being in the home to now being in factories to now maintaining jobs um, and, and producing supplies for the war effort gaining their independence um, and being women, but also being brown women and what that really meant. And that's why Pachucas were really attacked because they were at this intersection of being brown and being women. And um, because they were, you know, out on the street or wherever it was, they would typically get sent to, uh, to courts. They would go to jail. They would, you know, be in front of a judge and the judge would, take parental custody away from the Mexican parents and label them wards of the state. And when they were wards of the state, what, what the government did is that they would send them to these, these homes, these, um, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, these, these, these assimilation schools. And what they would try to do is reculturate them or uh, assimilate them into American society. But what they found is that Pachucas were very resistant. They, were, they rejected these ideas and these ideals of American um, womanhood and Mexican womanhood. And they would also uh, raise consciousness about the ethnic divide and, and the, the treatment that they were receiving as second-class citizens. And in some cases, they even um, enlightened other ethnic groups like African-Americans. And they, they said, hey, like, we're never, no matter how much we try to assimilate into American culture, we still have the color of our skin. So why are we going to reject our culture? Why are we going to try and fit this mold when all we're doing is, is being treated less than? And so you had the homes themselves saying, hey, like, we don't want, we don't want these brown kids. We don't want pachucas here. We don't want, if they have any type of Pachuca resentment, um, or if they have any type of Pachuca, um, Pachuca culture within them, we don't want them because all they're going to do 
is create a further divide and they're going to start enlightening other women and we don't want that and so the women in particular had a very rough start um, but again, this was seen as a form of rebellion, as a form of social resistance. And I think that that's very powerful because for so long, we've been, we've, I think Mexican-Americans and culture, right? Uh, especially coming from East LA, you see that even now these themes are still prevalent in society. You see that our identities as brown women or as uh, brown men are, are still being attacked by American culture. Um, when it comes down to the cholas with the eyebrows or whatever it was. And, and those things are, are patterns that we, we got from that era, right? Those are things that we've maintained and, and we've, we've been proud of because we've always known that no matter how hard we try, we're still going to be seen as less than. And I think it's really important to dive into that and to understand the symbolism of, of what that meant within that suit. Um, again, it wasn't just something that was, I'm going to wear a piece of cloth. It was much more than that. It was like, hey, I'm here. I'm present. I am a brown woman. And I exist within this society that tries to put me in this box of being a caretaker and being a homemaker um, and being an American citizen in the World War II effort. But the reality was not really um, showing that. And so... I think, again, we need to re-examine and, and, re and highlight those differences that these women face because for far too long, they've been painted and portrayed as women um, who, who were just uh, vengeful or who were resistant to trying to um, Americanize themselves. And so I think it's important to remember their social resistance and understand that they set the tone for mass uh, mobilization and movements uh, from there, there on out, you know, again, they, they, they had, you know, influence into other groups as well. And, and, and in acknowledging that, um, they said, ya basta, they said enough, you know, we're not going to ever fit into your mold and, and we're here and we're proud and, and we're brown, we're brown and we're proud. And so that's what the Pachuca suit meant for them. Thank you, JP. Do you see the zoot suit other than, I mean, yes, it is, is a form of resistance. What silence do you recognize in, in, in them using a zoot suit, even for Mexican-American culture itself? Because like you said, there was a rebellion brewing, right? There's something coming on and they know that they're not going to fit in this box and they know they don't want to fit in this box anymore because my mom don't look happy. And I know I'm never going to have that whiteness that I need in this box. And so informing that identity for themselves I think that the, the, the violence that comes from the silence of their stories is telling in and of itself, right? Again, um, they tried, Mexican parents tried to silence their daughters by not letting them go out. Um, American politics tried to silence their daughters by sending them off to the state or making them wards of the state. And in that way, they perpetuated the violence just because they wanted to adopt this identity of being a pachuca and realizing who they were in society. And that is, to me, one of the, cultural assimilation is one of the greatest forms of violence because what you're doing is you're taking away someone's right to identify. You're taking away their right to choose their, who they want to be. Um, and, and it came from both sides. It came from the Mexican families, the Mexicano families, and it came from American society. So. So I think in that way, 
um, forcing them, forcing them to fit into this mold was the, the, the violence. Right. Okay. What are some observations that you have in the difference? Like, especially at that time of the Zoot Suit riots, but like you were talking about just now still going on today, servicemen get in a uniform and they're servicemen, right? And then a group of white men, boys, whatever you want to call it, get together and they're like, have this brotherhood and they're going to die for each other. And all of these things are going to happen and they're forming their identities together. And it's called a fraternity. And and what happens to uh, Mexican American or anything brown that forms its own form of a brotherhood and, and are ready to go to war for each other? Um, so with the, with the zoot suits, right, you, you, or yeah, with the suits themselves, the pachucos and the pachucas, they saw themselves as, as a group of people who, who identified the same and they were looked at because they were brown as a threat to society. And it was because of the color of their skin. Um, it was because they were rejecting these ideals of, of giving back to the war efforts and becoming American because they knew they were never going to be seen as, as Anglo Americans. They knew that they knew that they were Mexican Americans. They were always going to be treated as second class citizens. And so when you have a group forming their own identity, it becomes a threat. Um, and that, that threat was then carried out by the newspapers and they were told that they were part of, you know, they were even called, you know, enemies of the state at one point in time, they were, they were labeled as people who were helping the Axis, which, you know, obviously was the opposite side of, we were the allies and they were the Axis and, and they were seen as someone who was part of the Axis, just like Jap the Japanese were sent into internment camps, Chicanos and, and the Pachucos and the Pachucas were seen in the same way. I mean, they weren't sent away, but they were definitely seen and, 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 and formed as a threat to American ways of life and American ideology. Um, and that's what that suit represented. It was a, it was a, a threat to American society and idealism. And so um, that's why they went after them and that's why they attacked them. Oh man, JP, that was so powerful. Thank you. Thank you for letting us see through different eyes, like letting us know what's happening, what's going on. I'd never even thought that someone would only carry that for self-defense. That was amazing. Next, we have another powerful woman with another strong voice. This is a woman named Leslie, and Leslie is gonna let you know her positions and what she found in her research, you guys. This is so inspiring. This is such exciting stuff. So taking a look at the history of ethnic Mexicans in the United States, when we hear the year 1943, I'm sure many, many of us, the first thing that pops into our minds are the Zutsu riots. And I'm almost certain, 99.9% .9 sure, that those of you who are listening or will listen to us know about the Zutsu riots. But for that 0.1% who might not know, I'll briefly talk about what they were. So basically, public history narrates that during the summer of 1943, from around June 3rd to June 13th, a civil disturbance, as some historians call it, occurred. Confrontations between white servicemen and men of color, youth minority groups in particular, took place in downtown LA, well, primarily in downtown LA. 
and some of these youth of color, chiefly Mexican-Americans, were identified as petrucos or zoot suiters. They wore zoot suits, which at the time, much of the public, particularly white servicemen and civilians, thought the suit represented rebellion, un-Americanism, and difference, hence servicemen directed violence specifically towards zoot suiters. Thus, contrary to what the name implies, the riots were initiated and carried out by white servicemen and civilians. They went out on the streets of downtown LA, rampaging and searching for zoot suiters to beat them up, strip them of their zoot suit, to then destroy the suit. In fact, for zoot suiters like Maurice Masson, such violence symbolizes stripping of zoot suiters' masculinity, highlighting the prominence of gender in these events. So this is what the zoot suit riots were. Now, in researching the zoot suit riots and attempting to find how women were also involved in this event, I found out that it's really important to recognize and mention how the zoot suit riots started as it's a segue to discuss how women were viewed during the riots. Subsequent to the Slippery Lagoon case, which just a minute ago, Jalen discussed about, the riots were said to be instigated because weeks prior, servicemen were reporting to authorities that zoot suiters were harassing white women. Actually, a day before the riots began, Los Angeles newspaper published that a gang of patrupos kidnapped two young married women and raped them. So essentially, the riots occurred because due to a culminating tension between white servicemen and young Mexican-Americans that had reached its pinnacle. And as literary critic Luis Leal states, the Zoot Suit riots instigated an open confrontation between white Americans and Mexican-Americans. Now, Catherine Sue Ramirez in her book, The Woman in the Zoot Suit, Gender, Nationalism, and Cultural Politics of Memory, discusses the Zoot Suit riots, however, in a slightly different way than we would expect. It's through the lens of Mexican-American women. She resents the Pachucas as agents, and as she mentions, presents the Pachuca as an icon. As you may have noticed, the details I brought up about the Zutus exclusively regard men and disregard women. This, thus, in analyzing the description I just mentioned about how the Zutu riots began, Ramirez points out that white women, like Mexican-American women, were described as sexual objects in the dispute between servicemen and Mexican-American men. She also adds that in LA, Mexican-American women were targets of sexual violence prior and during the Zutu riots. As a result, many of the stories published during the Zutsu riots reduced women, as Ramirez mentions, to passive interchangeable objects between these two groups of men. It's important to note this because this reduction explains why women's perspectives is missing in the popular narratives of the riots. Or as Ramirez puts it, the accounts fail to disclose the intricate impact the riots had on women, Mexican-American women in particular, their response to such events and the meanings they attributed to it, placing women instead as inherently unfaithful, or as some of us may know, placing them under the label of malignant Though through this, there is a really interesting point that Hermes brings up about this, about viewing women as disloyal and interchangeable between the two conflicting men, group of men. And it's that it presents the manner in which the riots jeopardize or threaten to break down the walls constructed between race, class, and gender, which is what the white Americans were trying to protect in the first place when they started the riots. It's obviously like blew my mind because to think that white men would think that that they had more control or power by placing Mexican women, American women in positions in which they were viewed as interchangeable sexual objects between white and American Mexican American men in riots, and the opposite actually occurring was kind of surprising. Instead of protecting these boundaries of race, class, and gender, which is the purpose of the riots, women in the riots made white men engage with youth minorities in such a way that these boundaries were threatened. I had never thought about the riots in this way, and it just goes to show just how powerful women can be despite being treated as sexual objects by men. Even through oppression, women play an active role in historical events. 
And further, this goes to prove just how important Mexican-American women were during the Zutsu riots, and thus cannot be silenced. Rather than just being a, a racist event, obviously, as most historians have depicted, the riots were also sexist events. Ramirez reveals that few historians have noted that in addition to being harassed by servicemen, Mexican-American women in LA during the Zutsu riots faced sexism within the Mexican community. As Mexican-American men who did not quote-unquote want to share a Mexican-American woman with white men placed social control measures on these women, which is an issue Maylene Blackwell also addresses in her book, Chicana Power, Contested Histories of Feminism in, Chic in the Chicano Movement. Now, much of the readings I have gone through regarding the Zutsu riots note that the mainstream Filipino press, academia, and law enforcement were primarily the storytellers of the riots. There's no doubt that the Zutsu riots drew attention to the manner in which Mexican-Americans dressed, that their makeup and hair in the newspaper. Descriptions of Pachuca style and references to the Black Widows, who were a so-called Pachuca gang, appeared in various newspapers. Actually, one newspaper uh, during the Zutsu riots wrote that although the Zutsu girls, quote-unquote, were sharp-looking or cute, they were not particularly clean. Another mainstream Angelino press during the riots mocked and defamed the Pachuca wife or mother. Nonetheless, as Ramirez raises, these accounts display a concern with the novel visibility and mobility of Mexican-American women. Women decide to counteract these such false or misleading constructions of a Mexican woman in a way to resist these types of sentences. Because after all, this is a form of sentencing because the newspapers do not portray the realistic and authentic figure of the Pachuca. And these women also use the same type of media to raise their voice. To exemplify this, Ramirez presents one publication during the Zutsu riots made by the East Side Journal. So basically what happened was that a group of Mexican-American women went to, the, uh, to Al Waxman. And Al Waxman is the publisher of the East Side Journal because they basically went to him because they wanted to respond to a, sto a story sorry, that depicted the Pachucas as cheap prostitutes infected with STDs and addicted to weed. The journal decided to publish their letter. Though the interesting thing is that the newspaper to rebut the negative portrayal of the Pachuca underscored that these girls had never been in trouble with the law. They were former honor students, defense workers, and the relatives and friends that had, they had relatives and friends that were in the American armed forces. Through this, they were also trying to declare their American identity. They were presented in the newspaper as young ladies. The Mexican-American wanted to claim full citizenship and respectability during the Zutsu riots. As Aramidas mentions, these demonstrates how Mexican-American women responded to the riots and confronted dominant producers in this, and did pictures of the Pachuca figure and who were responsible for constructing an anti-American sentiment during the, the time in LA. Furthermore, the news revealed that the violence of the riots not only physically hurt men, violence also was directed to Mexican-American women on the streets and in the newspaper, which I think brings to these women another level of respect. Nonetheless, Violence of the riots also happened in the silencing of a myriad of other Mexican-American women whose voices or letters were never even published. As a matter of fact, before the young ladies went to Al Waxman, they had gone to the Metropolitan Press who had refused to publish their letter. They were lucky in a sense, I guess, but in a way, I think it also highlights Mexican-American women's challenge to refute. One story that caught my attention that Maria has also talked about was that of another group of Mexican-American women who Carrie Mac Williams, an American journalist, called the Real Pachucas, these women wanted to prove their patriotism. They, they in fact offered to donate their blood to the American Red Cross, but were denied because they were Mexican. And their story, the Real Pachuca side, was never even published. 
Though through this account, one can see that the Pachucas were attempting to redefine the term Pachuca. Even the publication that I mentioned earlier by the, the young ladies, these Amer Mexican and American women wanted to give new meaning to the terms American and quote-unquote Mexican-American women. I mean, the women who wore the zoot style as Ramirez and analogists were citizens of families, daughters, sisters, wives, founders, Americans, consumers, patriots, critics of dominant press, so, to say mention a few. So taking on so many roles already implies that the Pachuca was a complex character. Even her skirt had a complex, carried a complex meaning tied to the Zutsu rights, and obviously needed to be redefined and rescued from the flat vice character that the media portrayed her as. Though what struck me was the image of the ladies, young ladies in the publication. In the photograph, none of the women are wearing the Pachuca style, except for one who's just wearing Pachuca prints. But the rest were wearing, as Ramirez described, a conservative feminine attire with high heels and bows. Ramirez writes that the Pachuca figure is still caught upon in the picture and re quote unquote represents an absent presence and constitutive other. In a way, they were trying to remove the disloyal vice Malinche, like if we put it that way, Pachuca. Though when I read this, I was, I said, hold on, because for other, from other readings I have taken a look at, and have taken a similar approach to Ramirez in trying to uncover the Pachuca perspective, I thought that Pachuca was a figure that was attempting to discover or generate her own identity by doing things as challenging gender roles through their clothing style, which presents a not too conflicting image of the Pachuca compared to the one the media portrayed for us who are looking back at the time period the Pachuca emerged. So I thought to myself, isn't the image contradicting? Because the Pachuca is supposed to be attempting the chat attempting to challenge the gender norms. However, in the image, it seems like they're doing the opposite by the way they dress. Though I quickly realized that this exactly is what Ramirez wanted the reader to realize. The Pachuca image is intricate. The representation of the Pachuca during the Zutsu riots was different for every individual, for every woman. Some of the Pachuca women who experienced the riots and who Ramirez interviewed had a complex relationship with the figure of the Pachuca. I think this is extremely important, if not one of the main takeaways. Narratives that construct binaries intrinsically create silencing because actors of history who are too are too complex to place a binary label on, on them. In this particular case, the media attempted to portray Pachucas as evil in a way white, uh, and white civilians as good. However, we realize that the Pachuca is not evil. She's a round character with it and her representation is distinct for various people. Thus, it's critical for us to acknowledge this. And when coming across any source of information regarding the Pachuca, figure, we need to ask ourselves, how is the Pachuca being portrayed in the particular source? And how does th that particular portrayal relate to other representations of the Pachucas as the ones I had mentioned above? Just to add on, women not only attempted to break their sciences by writing public publications, but there, there were Mexican-American women like Josefina Fierro de Bright went out and contacted people in leadership positions who could con take control of the rights. In June 1943, she met with Vice President Henry Wallace to appeal to the Roosevelt administration to end the rights. I thought Fierro de Bright, through this action, was a good example as to how Mexican-American women were refuting the Malinche figure that was imposed on them. And once again, this goes to show just how important Mexican-American women were to the Zutsu rights. information in such a short time leslie thank you we appreciate you our listeners appreciate you we're so excited 
to have such powerful women on our podcast today to uncover the truths that were never told and and the facts that things were only told by the men at that time to hear your women's voices stand up in unity and solidarity is so inspiring i know we've come to the end of our journey guys and i know we've learned a lot about the zoot suit riots about the sleepy lagoon trial and about the zoot suit era in general my mind is completely blown by everything i've just heard you guys i just thank you all for taking this journey with me and thank you to our special speakers for today we truly appreciate all the work that you powerful women have done to continue this movement I think I might even want to be a Pachuca after today. That was great, guys. Thank you for taking this journey with me. And until next time, it's Sunday all day. And you know where to find me.